Sometimes studying the Bible can feel overwhelming and confusing. Grounded in Truth with Janet Dennison will help you learn to study, understand, and apply God's Word to your daily life. His Word is true. And guess what? It's for everyone. So thanks for joining us today as we dive into Scripture together. Welcome to Lesson 8 in our study of Romans. We're in Romans chapter 5, and this is going to be a fun day. You're about to read the eloquent thoughts of the Apostle Paul that only he could write. This is one of the chapters, truthfully, that caused some of the theologians to wonder if Paul actually wrote this letter because it is such high poetic language, but we know Tertius was there too, the scribe, and there is every possibility that he took Paul's words and made them what Paul wanted them to be, this high form of the language. So we know that God in his perfect will chose Paul, born of a Jewish father, a Greek mother, and a Roman citizen educated in the temple in Jerusalem, student of Gamaliel, Pharisee of Pharisees, converted on the road to Damascus, and amazingly capable to craft the theology that all of us stand on today. God in his perfect will chose Paul to do that. And what we're going to read today in chapter 5 is this fulfillment of what Paul has been saying in the last three chapters, really, as he brings it all to a closure. And as he talks about who is it in this world that is truly justified. Romans 5.1 begins with the word therefore. And I always tell my classes I teach, if a chapter begins with the word therefore, make certain you understand what the therefore is therefore. So we have to back up to the end of chapter 4 when Paul said the words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who was raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. We believe what the Bible says about the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And that's why we are justified. That's why Paul says that it's been credited to us as righteousness. And then he says, therefore, because you have accepted Jesus, because you have been credited with the same righteousness that God credited Abraham with, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Romans 5, 1-2. Because we have already been justified, 
If you're a Christian, you are right now justified. You've been granted access to God's grace and his hope. We are currently saved, justified through faith. We have been found guiltless by God. Through faith, we have peace, which is often translated. In fact, in the original language, peace was harmony with God. If you've ever heard two people sing together, not at all in harmony, you can know what that is. Paul is saying we have the opposite. We, our life has come into harmony with God. We have access to God, his holy presence. To the Jewish person, this would have reminded them of the one day of the calendar year that a Jewish person was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was, the mercy seat of God. One day a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest only would dress up in a robe that had bells at the bottom of the hem, and he would tie a rope around his ankle, and he would be allowed to take a blood sacrifice in to the Holy of Holies, lay it on the top of the ark, the mercy seat, and know he was in the presence of God himself. The reason he had bells on his robe and a rope tied around his ankle was because those outside knew that if the bells stopped ringing, they were to pull on the rope. That meant that in the presence of God, this high priest had died. And Paul says, through faith, we have harmony with God. We are so one with God that we have access into God's presence. And we right now have God's grace. We stand in his favor. And right now we have the hope of glory. Christians don't just look forward to heaven and the blessings that we will have in heaven. Understand, we have the certainty, the confidence, the promise of heaven right now. And how do we know that? Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. This seems to be an odd transition from what we just read to a sentence on suffering and persevering through suffering. It's because you and I live in a time when we have, for the most part, been uh, respected for being a person of faith. That's changing in our world today a little bit. Uh, for the first time, there are Christians, well, I say in our culture, there have always been Christians persecuted. Right now, the Christians in China are being dreadfully persecuted. There have always been people who are persecuted for our faith. But if you are listening to me, this seems an odd transition. To the Christians in Paul's day, it was immediate, automatic. It was what they already knew. 
Not only do we have hope now that gives us access to God and his glory and his comfort and his joy, not only so, we also glory in our sufferings. Not that we're suffering, are we proud? But even when we suffer, we have God's presence with us. We know that our suffering produces perseverance. We suffer with God and we grow stronger. We persevere because we know God can help us do that. And perseverance produces God's character in our lives. We know God more. We are more of who Jesus Christ is. His character is more and more produced in us through our suffering, through our perseverance. And that character produces this hope, this confidence in heaven. Hope does not put us to shame, Paul says. Why? One of the best verses in Romans. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We will talk more about the Holy Spirit later. Never underestimate who the Holy Spirit is intended to be in your life. He is everything Paul just said. He is our strength. He is our ability to persevere. He is our confidence that the Word of God is true. He is our hope. He is our character. When God poured His Holy Spirit into your life, He poured the very nature, the very name, the very character of Jesus into your life. Never underestimate what the Holy Spirit wants to do through you. You are able to do anything the Holy Spirit calls and equips you to do. So Paul writes, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. One of the interesting subjects to study, I don't have enough time today to do it, is the timing of the birth of Christ during a time when the world was at peace, during the time when Rome had built roads that the gospel could be carried on, during the time when there was one central language that most people, most nations were able to communicate in. That's when Jesus stepped out of heaven and into that infant's body. At just the right time, while we were still powerless, in the original language, that word is sickly, weak, unable. The church had grown weak, powerless, confused, and Christ was born. And he died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died for you and I before we ever committed our first mistake. Jesus died for you and I, even though he knew we would be less than holy at times of our life. That's when Jesus died for you. It's not when you did good enough things to be acceptable. 
He died for us even before we knew what godly looked like. And God demonstrated his love for us in this. Sometimes people mistakenly think of God as the God of wrath, and Jesus, his son, is the one who tries to appease him, our go-between. It's been preached and taught that way. We talked about what God hates. He hates sin. He hates anything that hurts his kids. But when Jesus died, it was God demonstrating his love for us by giving us his son. We were powerless to save ourselves. We were weak and sickly, unable to live a perfect life. These verses we've just read describe the utter depth of God's love. God would do anything to provide for your salvation. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. The key to John 3.16 is the first words, for God so loved. Who? Everybody. The world. Do we love the world like God did? Jesus said it was the second most important commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's our standard for faith. That's our standard that we have been given because we've been given the character of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God poured it into us so that we could love like him. So Paul writes, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? That verse is saying, since right now God sees us as justified, sees us as sinless, sinful made sinless is probably the best way to say it. Just like he sees us that way now, how much more will he see us that way when we arrive in heaven and we've been saved from this world, from the wrath? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received, big word here, reconciliation. This is the next lane Paul is going to take us to. He says in this passage, if God would save you before you were even cleaned up and acting straight, how much more will he save you now that you've been washed in the blood of the Lamb? How much more can you count on the fact you have been reconciled to God? Reconciled, found right with him. These verses talk about the height that God will go. There is nothing God won't do to bring people to himself. He gave everything. Biblical reconciliation, what is that? 
It means God removed his wrath, the wrath that existed between him and all of humanity. It's not something man did. It's nothing man could have done. Only God in his perfection could have found a way to cover every sin. In the Old Testament, it was the sacrificial system, and that was a way for a person to come to God in repentance and re be reconciled again to God. In the New Testament, God made the sacrifice himself that reconciled. He reconciled by offering his son Jesus. Our reconciliation doesn't depend on our continual effort to be made right. Our reconciliation depends on the grace of God. And because it's no longer dependent on human actions, we can count on it as perfect redemption, perfect reconciliation. And so he writes, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. I'll pause here to say that I don't think Paul took a breath when he was saying all this. This is one big, long paragraph that is a run-on sentence, and I'm going to read it that way. So I'm going to start over again, and hopefully I can get through the whole thing. This is how Paul says, therefore, because you've been reconciled, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. And Paul says, uh, by the way, have I mentioned lately that everybody sinned? That's kind of what he's saying again. He's talking about Adam. Adam knew not to eat of the fruit of the garden, but he did. Adam knew he'd been commanded, and he sinned. Everybody after Adam, after they were thrown out of the garden and had to live in a fallen world, everybody was charged with sin, but it wasn't charged against anyone because there wasn't a law, but still death reigned. Still there were those that sinned and death had rule over them. They lacked faith. Cain lacked faith. Abel didn't. That's the picture of what Paul is saying here. But Adam was a pattern of the one to come. Keep that in mind as we do this. Because this is a this is a, a road we're on here. It's a fast lane of the freeway. So hang with me on this. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. I'll explain that in just a minute. 
because he's still talking. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in the justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. I know that's a lot. Let me sum it up. I can go back and talk about each verse, but they're all leading to one central point. Paul says, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The structure and brilliance of what Paul has just said has volumes of commentary. I literally can't do that passage justice in the time that I have. But I will tell you what Paul was trying to say in my Janet Dennison summary, Reader's Digest summary of that passage. He has, in essence, built a brilliant argument, structuring it from Adam all the way to Jesus. And this is the structure. Through Adam's sin, sin separated everyone from God. And since that time, everyone like Adam has sinned. One man, one sin, introduced sin into the world. God justified our sins by providing the sacrifice of Christ in the New Testament, and then accepting anyone who, through faith, receives that grace gift into their lives. God always provided for our sin, always provided, but it always required a sacrifice. How were Adam and Eve clothed? God sacrificed animals. Animals gave their lives to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness after they had sinned. I can't explain why God requires a blood sacrifice for sin. I trust that it's required. I trust God's perfection. But that one thing has been true since God himself made the first blood sacrifice for sin in order to clothe Adam and Eve. From there, in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, people were told which animal to bring and what to do with that animal for each various sin had its own sacrifice that was required. Until finally, God 
stepped into the world again and said, now, through one man, through his blood, his sacrifice, every sin, past and present, will be covered for those who place their faith in him. God did that. God demonstrated his love for us by giving that sacrifice again, just like he did for Adam and Eve to cover them. Once again, God gave his son so that through one sacrifice, not just one man's sin would be covered, everybody's sin is covered. And so, through faith in Jesus, we're reconciled to God. Next, Paul's going to begin to discuss the process of sanctification being made holy now. He has told us how to be redeemed. He has told us how to be justified. He has told us how next, how we can be sanctified, be made holy, a process that begins at salvation and continues until that day we step into heaven and it is complete. So before we grow toward holiness, you have to understand the tension that Paul has talked about between faith and works. In Ephesians 2, 9 and 10, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That's another time Paul wrote the same idea to the church in Ephesians. But then we have to accept the tension we find when we look at the book of James, chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. And it's not a complete quote of that, but it's the gist. James wrote, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. We're going to look at what it means to be sanctified. And we have to somehow marry those two verses in order to do it. We'll be doing that through Paul's help. So I look forward to talking with you next week when we discuss that tension. Do our works matter? Absolutely. But only when they're born from our faith. See you next week. We are so glad that you are participating in this study of Romans. We would love to encourage you to spend time in a personal study of Paul's letter as well. There is a printed workbook that contains a summary of Rome during Paul's time, maps and thought-provoking weekly lessons with commentary and questions that will allow you to learn far more about the passage and how that passage can impact your life. We hope you'll get a copy so that you can study Romans in depth with greater understanding. Simply go to foundationswithjanet.org to order your copy today.